Welcome back to another episode of Tech Stacks, the FinTech podcast for advisors. My name is Sean Alaka, and I'm your tech editor here at IN. Today, I'm super excited to be diving into the vast universe and getting vaster by the minute of alternative investing. It's been pretty cool for me to see just over like the past couple of months of covering a lot of these stories, to see the wide range of investments that clients can get their hands on using a lot of these new FinTech platforms. There's collect all sorts of collectibles, antique uh, muscle cars, even rare musical instruments. So it's been pretty awesome to see the differences in what clients can actually choose to invest in and what they're interested in. What's even cooler is that these fintech firms are also bringing down the investment minimums needed to get into these funds. So what traditionally would have been, you know, an ultra high net worth, accredited advisors, you know, spend a couple hundred thousands of dollars to get into a fund now has become fractionalized and could literally be like 25 bucks a share to get some incredible piece of artwork or an art collection. So that's been pretty interesting to see. And while traditional arts like real estate and private equity and REITs are expected to be the fastest growing segment, I really wanted to like dive into the really funky niche investments and talk to some really cool founders of these platforms to see what making these investments tick, how their platforms are working and why there's so much interest in these investments. So that's what we're getting into today. Sit back, relax. Welcome to Techstacks. I'm super excited to welcome to the pod, Nick King. He's a founder of the alt investment platform, Vint. And Vint is a really, really cool company. They're SEC qualified wine um, investment platform, and they offer shares of wine and, and alcohol funds that they build. They have a million dollars in investments on the platform together. I'll let Nick tell you more about it. I don't want to mess anything up, but the cool part about it is that their latest collection is um, a collection of fine, of rare uh, Japanese whiskey from a producer called Karuzawa. That might not be correct, but I'll have Nick uh, fill in the blanks for me, which is this great Japanese wine. So, and it's available at $34 a share. So Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about the company and, and why you jumped into Japanese whiskey? Thanks for having me, Sean. Uh, looking forward to going into the background event and, and really diving into um, this alternative investment space. So backstory on myself, I actually come from the investment world. I was on the domestic equities team of a value investment fund. Um, they managed about 20 billion. And what stood out to me about alternative assets and wine in particular was really its investment um, merits. So fine wine over the last 121 years has returned 8.5% annually. Cambridge ran a study on this. It has a 0.12 correlation to the S&P. It's a very inefficient market. Um, So Patrick, my co-founder and I, we looked to invest in the industry and um, all the products out there were kind of the same. It was send somebody money, um, generally $25,000 plus, and then three weeks later, you would get a list of wines. We thought that was a really opaque, inefficient, and exclusive way to access this really interesting asset class. So we spent eight months with the SEC to get qualified under Reg A plus um, of the Jobs Act. And what that allows us to do is we work with a team of experts. We have some of the um, 
best wine investors or people who have been in the wine industry across the entire world on our wine investment committee, actually two of the 50 or so masters of wine here in the United States. And we curate collections. It could be a regional theme. It could be a collection like the Karizawa 36 Views of Mount Fuji, which is um, a set of bottles um, that all have this certain um, artwork on it. And it is the complete set, uh, one of the only ones on the open market. So we'll curate these collections, file paperwork with the SEC, and then allow anybody, both accredited and non-accredited investors, to purchase shares in these collections in a highly transparent, very efficient, and trusted manner. So we launched in, in May, and since then, we've had over 1.3 million invested across the platform, and we're, we're really growing fast. And um, to kind of show how fast we've been growing this Japanese whiskey collection, it was live last time we talked, Sean. Um, however, it is now sold out. So it was a $187,000 collection. 5,500 shares, $34 per share, and it sold out in under five days. Uh, how cool is that? So maybe you could dive into a little bit about it, because I mean, we spoke just about, I mean, it was late last week, so um, this might this had to have gone pretty quickly, but besides it probably tasting amazing, uh, what, uh, what makes this a good investment, or what drew you to Japanese whiskey? So one interesting thing that we do is we produce these one pagers um, coming from the investment world. Uh, I, I really believe the future of alternative investments um, needs to have another layer of financialization on top of it. So these one pagers that we um, produce, they're similar to a, a stock pitch. Uh, we talk about what is our thesis? What are some of the investment highlights? Um, and with Japanese whiskey in particular in this Karizawa collection, the supply is finite. So this distillery closed and has not produced any new whiskey since 2001. Um, and as a result of that um, supply and demand balance, the demand has really, really been, um, been skyrocketing. And as more bottles are consumed. Um, I think that's one of the, the interesting things about fine wine and whiskey is that the supply is, is ever decreasing because they are consumed. Um, and as time goes on, in particular with wine and then whiskey that is in casks, the quality is always improving as it ages. Um, with this set, there's very few known complete sets. Uh, we did some research um, and we found only one recorded sale of the full set of 36, and we were unable to find any full set currently available on the market. And just a general um, consumer preference uh, market dynamic, Japanese whiskey has been um, very strong. The category has been growing amongst collectors and it continues to um, show strong growth. So we were really excited that we were able to put together this kind of one of a kind uh, collection for um, anybody to invest in. So like when, you, when you're talking about um, that some of these whiskeys get consumed and some of them mature, well, do these, 
investments mature as well? Is there is there an end date to these or how does it work? You just can pull your money off of the funds at any time or maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, the ins and outs. There will be two options for liquidity. Right now we provide people with an estimated um, sale window. So um, it's an estimate. Our hold period that we um, advise investors of is three to seven years. And we try and be very fair when we market and talk to investors and say, hey, this is a long-term investment. Um, we view it as a portfolio diversification tool. We're not saying that this is going to 10x, 100x and make you a billionaire. It's a night asset, stability, lack of correlation. Um, and that is our, our estimated hold. However, one interesting thing that we intend to build on our platform is a secondary trading market. So um, we don't have that now and we have various risk um, factors related to potentially not having that. However, um, it's something that is on our product roadmap um, to include a secondary trading market where if you want to um, li liquidate your shares, uh, we are able to build on top of an alternative trading system for um, people to trade their shares on the Vint platform. Oh, cool, cool. So right now, these are finite amount of time that your money is going to be held up in these funds. Like you said, three to seven years. Yes. Um, interesting. And then I'm saying this half jokingly, but if if these wines, say it was a wine or a, a collection of wines, say for whatever reason they, they lost value and no one was interested in these wines anymore, this whiskey, can you still drink it? We, by working with the SEC, um, that that limits your ability to take your investment right. in kind. Um, however, um, as we look to diversify our end sales channels, um, we want to provide investors with an opportunity to purchase parts of a collection, maybe a whole collection um, through our own sourcing channels. Um, but yeah, we, we think experience is, is very, very interesting. We, we talk about this um, term experiential investing um, quite a bit. So whether it is bringing investors to a wine tasting um, about an upcoming collection, we actually had an event um, related to an upcoming Piemonte collection where a master Sam gave a, an educational presentation we tasted some of the wines and it was a really great event. We heard really, really good feedback from our investors about that. So I guess if you want to drink the wine, you have to go to the liquor store then, not do these investments. How about if you talk to us a little bit, because I thought it was pretty interesting when you told me a little bit about the SEC qualification, because I didn't know too, too much about it. I mean, I'd heard of it, but how does that differ from what other companies are doing? I mean, what is it? And, and you say you're one of the only ones that have this qualification. Can you just explain a little bit more to the audience? Reg A plus is a, is a regulation created under, under the JOBS Act. And some of the early collectible investment platforms kind of paved a way for us to um, set up this really, really unique structure. So we're the only platform specializing in fine wine and spirits that has this qualification. So the way that it works is we will go out and curate and source these collections. Each collection is put into its own LLC and we'll file the paperwork with the SEC. And it basically tells the SEC, hey, these are the assets 
Um, here's how our business works. They qualified a nearly 100 page draft. It reads similar to an S1. Um, so they'll review an amendment, they'll come back and grant us qualification. And then once we're qualified with the SEC for a batch of collections, we can list them on our platform. Um, and as an investor, you're purchasing a um, registered security um, and the wines are held in individual LLCs. So it's a really, really interesting structure and allows people to access this asset class in um, different ways. So for example, um, one of our partners is an alternative um, IRA provider, Alto IRA, and people are able to invest via their self-directed IRAs into these alternative assets. So I think this structure really sets us up in a way where we're going to be able to tap into the, the largest pools of capital. And what I've been comparing this to um, recently is in 2015, 2016, if I told you that um, financial advisors and RIAs were going to allocate client funds into crypto, you probably would have laughed at me. I think that's where we are with this alternative space where, yeah, it's, it's early, but with this SEC qualified structure, um, when the Morgan Stanley chief investment strategist is telling people in 2025, hey, one to 2% of your portfolio in fine wine and spirits, that can be a great way to diversify and um, stabilize your portfolio. We're going to be there to capitalize because we've done things the right way from day one. And, and not even just whiskeys, but maybe just we could talk about alternative investments in general, because I saw you mentioned 2025. I saw a stat. I mean, stats can say a lot of things, but there was one that said alternative investments is, are supposed to double assets in them. are supposed to double from 2017 to 2025. So we're like right in the middle of this kind of explosion of these alt investments. I've been writing about it for the last couple of months. And I mean, there's just more and more of them every day and more opportunities and more options of things that you can get involved with. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about just the popularity of the vaults that we've seen over the past couple of years. Definitely. And I still believe we're in the early innings of um, alternatives. And we like to say that we want to bring fine wine and spirits to everyone's portfolio. Um, so I think that we're in a really interesting macro environment right now for alternative assets with the S&P trading at um, valuations that are considered to be high bonds are yielding basically nothing. Um, alternatives show a relative attractiveness in a serious investor's portfolio. So what we've heard is people have been um, pulling from fixed income because they're just not happy with the yield and adding to um, this alternative um, asset class. And you see the SEC actually continuing to push these alternatives forward with um, recent increases in the maximum raise for different regulations like Reg A plus and Reg CF. So that SEC um, regulation pushing forward combined with a macro environment that is making alternatives attractive and consumer preference shifting to investing in these alternatives creates this um, perfect storm for alternatives to, to really take off. And, you know, I think there's a, re a reason that 
you, you see these statistics, um, Credit Suisse ran a study that ultra high net worth individuals have 5% of their portfolio in collectibles and a substantial portion of their portfolio in alternatives. Now with platforms like Vint, everybody's going to be able to allocate in that manner. I guess the last question I have for you is kind of what's coming up next for Vint. I think you mentioned that the, the Japanese collection that sold out. So unfortunately that one will be closed. Um, but what other things do you have cooking at Vint? What should we be looking for uh, down the road? So right now we have a Rhone Valley collection um, available, but the, the broad theme for 2022 is growth. Um, we raised a venture round in Q3 of this year. Our team has grown from two to eight um, assets on the platform, continuing continue to grow at a really fast rate. So we're going to look to add more collections, higher asset values, bring more and more investors on this platform. And we're always looking to um, improve our, our platform. So um, I'm, I'm personally focused on this, this RIA um, larger investor channel. We've heard great things thus far. And yeah, so growth, more assets, continuing to um, strive for great transparency, an efficient way to um, diversify and a brand built on on trust is uh, things to look out for in uh, in 2022. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. We're going to be looking out for for the next collection coming up and, and for what you guys do as a company moving forward. And uh, maybe I can come check you guys out and come to a wine tasting one day. That would be awesome. And thanks for having me, Sean. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Nick. Take care. So we're super excited to have an awesome podcast guest for you today. We have Rebecca Fine. She's the head of art financing at Yield Street. And Yield Street is a really cool fintech company. They're, they're a digital alternative investment provider, and they use a bunch of new technologies to um, kind of combine numerous investors into a single alt fund. And, and that kind of democratizes the process. It brings down the minimums for those investors. So it's super cool technology. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for being here. I'm so pleased. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So Maybe at first you could just give us kind of a rundown on Yield Street. I tried to explain it, but I didn't do it justice. So why don't you give us the, the lowdown? They did a great job. So we're a New York-based fintech company that was founded in 2015 to fix a fundamentally broken process. And the mission was really to provide access to best-in-class, high-yield institutional quality investment opportunities that were previously only available to the ultra-high net worth uh, individuals and institutions. Um, they, these alternative products weren't available to most people because the barriers to entry were too high. The minimum investments were too high. So we offer products to primarily to accredited investors and, um, and some to non-accredited investors. And stay tuned for that because we're planning to offer more of those products later this year. Awesome. So what kind of minimums do, do, you, do your clients kind of deal with? So in the art funds, it's a $10,000 minimum investment. Okay. We do have some other alternative investment products at Yield Street that have lower minimums. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it's super interesting that, you know, 10,000, while that maybe seems like a lot for some investors, I mean, to own a piece of art was out of the question. I mean, you didn't have to have somewhere in the millions. Absolutely. Or so. Absolutely. So some of our investors are, are really passionate about art, but don't yet have the hundreds of thousands or millions um, to invest in building an art collection themselves. But to your point with 
$10,000 or $20,000, effectively they do. They have access to masterpieces in a portfolio that's worth $20 million, for example. And, and talking about the art, maybe we can dive into your latest fund, which is really why I kind of got interested in, and brought you on today, because I thought it was so interesting. You have a fund that is offering exposure to a lot of artists from, from the Harlem Renaissance and from that tradition. Um, so I thought it was super timely, number one, with, with MLK Day and celebrating his yeah. life. And, uh, but also it's just such a funky investment. Like, you know, how you can just get so niche and, and so specific on what you wanna, you wanna invest in now with some of these new technologies like Yield Street. So maybe you can dive into a little bit of that for us. Absolutely. So with this second fund, we're providing investors a really unique opportunity to invest in a collection of artworks created by a diverse group of artists in the first, in the hundred years between the Harlem Renaissance and the present. And as you mentioned, the artists are primarily African-American and female painters who worked in Harlem and were inspired by its people and its really rich culture. And the Harlem Renaissance was, you might know, it was a surge of cultural and artistic expression in the twenties and thirties, which produced some of the most treasured works of American art and music and theater and fashion and literature. And as you know, it was also a very political time in our history. But the, the accomplishments of this movement and the artists and uh, activists in this movement laid the groundwork for the civil rights movement decades later. And in, in a lot of ways that has helped shape modern American culture today. A century later, Harlem's rich culture continues to inspire the creative community and produce some of the most respected and highly sought after artists today. And they're finally being reappraised, right? The visual artists of this movement are finally being reappraised and appreciated for their really important contributions by the world's preeminent museums and institutions, et cetera. Sure, yeah. I mean, it was super interesting doing some research for the article on alternative investments and, and different fun kind of investments you can get into. And just doing the research on, on Faith Ringgold was one yep. of the artists, a 91-year-old <laughs> uh, Black female artist who, you know, has has been a pioneer in some, not only in artistic expression, but in, in a lot of, you know, other ways and just in her community and, and in, in civil rights. So, I mean, that was, that was certainly one of the interesting parts of, of, of doing the research. Why did you decide to, to dive into Harlem Renaissance particularly? As I said, the artists of this movement had really been underrepresented mm -hmm. in the, uh, art owning institutions in the museum world. That was what Faith Ringgold was really protesting about, really mm -hmm. the lack of inclusion and the lack of um, attention that was being paid to these artists. Mm -hmm. And to your point, many of the artists represented in this fund have recently been the subject of major retrospectives and important exhibitions, which has resulted in heightened recognition and interest in their artworks. But for example, uh, Alice Neal, is a female painter, she's a brilliant painter, who really only in 2017, there was a retrospective of her work at the David Zwerner Gallery. And that exhibition itself really helped to focus on her immense talents and her artworks as, as a consequence are finally being reappreciated and we're seeing in the auction market. I mean, she's, her artworks are finally really being valued among the, the great iconic painters of the 20th century. 
And we were looking to create a really a, a collection of artists who we felt had the same trajectory and were really only now beginning to be um, appreciated and recognized. And we think there's obviously going to be financial, um, yeah. greater financial interest in sure, in sure. the artworks that they have created. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense because you're, you're catching these artists with, when, when their popularity is kind of really coming to the fore where they're kind of gaining more exposure. Not that they hadn't, weren't in, in the past, but now that there's increased um, interest and attention, those works are probably going to be good investments right now, right? Absolutely. So to your point, Faith Ringgold, um, she's another one of my favorites. She, she does this beautiful work that she describes as narrative quilts or story quilts that combine both um, painting on canvas and quilting. And she is going to be the subject of a major retrospective at the New Museum in New York City that's opening next month in February. And um, these, and to your point also, Alice Neal had a major retrospective last year at the Metropolitan Museum. But it's exciting to me to see these works um, together as a collection because they really do have relationships to one another. And a lot of these artists were influences of another. The early Harlem Renaissance painters like Jacob Lawrence and Norman Lewis were huge inspirations for Alice Neal. Wow, that's super cool. And maybe we could talk also about, I mean, art in general and investments in general. How, how have those, I mean, I know I've seen some data and things about how they, the performance over the last few years, but is, is there a lot more interest in just investing in art? I mean, it seems like, I know there's a huge demand for alternative investments um, for a number of different reasons we can maybe get into later, but um, I don't know, talk to me about how, how um, much interest is there in art investing right now? I think there's a lot. Uh, for a lot of people, they're interested, they have curiosity about artists and asset class, um, but they may not already be collectors. For them, this is maybe a way for them to diversify their portfolio with an investment that's linked to a hard asset, maybe as a way to hedge against rising inflation. Mm -hmm. For others, they're passionate about art, but they don't yet have the money to build their own collections. And um, we expect that there will be increasing interest in art-linked investments. Um, we know we're not the only company that's out there, um, although our product is very different from um, our competitors. Yeah, and how so, I mean, which what, what are the kind of um, prototypical clients that you work with, I guess? I mean, what's, what's kind of the demographic? Are they, um, I'm sure they're all over the place, but um, are they kind of millennials or are they more established? investors or is there a mix? I mean, who do you really cater to? I think there's a mix. The, our, fin our investors are financially savvy. Like they know that the contemporary art market has outperformed the S&P 500 over the past yeah. 25 years um, by, by more than four and a half percent. And I think that a lot of investors are interested in fractional art ownership. Yeah. And obviously the, the investment returns are really interesting. Um, you know, we're targeting um, really meaningful investment returns. But we're also, we think the investors are also looking for ways to learn about the art market. Um, so the, the art platform is really for people who love art, but might not otherwise have the opportunity to invest in it. And for those who are really curious about art as an asset class to diversify their in investment portfolio. Yeah. And we wanna really, one of our important objectives in creating the art platform is to give our investors the opportunity to gain exposure to art through, um, 
events with best in class art dealers and art advisors and auction house specialists and even the artists themselves. And now you said that most of the investors there are accredited? The investors in this fund uh, at this point are accredited investors, they are. But you offer products to non-accredited or do you mostly focus on, on the accredited? Yield Street does offer products to um, non-accredited investors. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this the art investments are for accredited investors at this time, but stay tuned and there's there's yeah. more to come. <laughs> yeah, let me know. Okay. Yeah, on that front, sure. Uh, for sure. So now these are mostly retail investors and are do, do any of them, are they kind of working with wealth managers as well? I mean, obviously our audience is all um, RAs and wealth managers and brokers and things. Do you also work with advisors? A lot of our investors do have art advisors. Um, I think that it really runs the, the gamut. I think people are really looking to modernize their portfolios, whether they're advised by other financial managers or learning themselves, they're experiencing the fact that the 60-40 model is not working. Mm-hmm. And like all major institutional investors, they're looking to alternatives um, like private equity and private credit and venture and, and passion assets and art. And this is how they're going to find the kind of returns they need to generate long-term wealth creation. Mm -hmm. And and I think technology is a big factor too, because that's bringing fractionalized access as well as greater education and transparency and just awareness of new investment options. Yeah, I know the fractionalizing is so, it's been so interesting the last few years, they're fractionalizing everything nowadays. I mean, not not just um, individual stocks and equities and like you you say, art. I mean, also for the story, I, I interviewed some people that, of fractionalized rare whiskeys from Japan. Yeah, it's like I super, saw that. Super, you could really just buy anything with fraction. It's been, it's such, I mean, it's just been so eye-opening to see. Fascinating. Yeah, and so how how much has that kind of fractionalization, the technology kind of democratized the investing? I know we talked about it, but, and we always talk about kind of FinTech democratizing things almost to a point where it's like, you know, moot almost or something. But I mean, this really has brought down minimums. How important has that been for retail investors? I think very meaningful. Mm-hmm. And it's our model in the art, in the art equity fund is different um, from, uh, you know, some of our competitors who are, who are fractionalizing ownership of, of a single piece of art. Mm-hmm meaning, you know, where they're basically acquiring an artwork, making sort of a mini IPO and and selling um, fractional shares of the artwork. Here, we think that diversification is is a key and really important differentiator Mm -hmm. um, because when you're sort of fractionalizing the ownership of a single work of art, you're taking 100% concentration risk in one work by one artist. And like everything else, artists or genres can fall in and out of favor and their markets are definitely impacted by those changes. Um, So in contrast, we're really thinking about offering investors the opportunity to invest in a diversified collection of artwork by a number of different artists, which thereby reduces concentration risk and provides better protection against price fluctuations. But fundamentally, it's a different form of fractional ownership, essentially, mm-hmm. in, in artworks. It's almost like, I mean, I don't want to make false comparisons, but it's almost like getting exposure through a fund or through like an ETF where you gain exposure to a whole 
kind of segment as opposed to just individual stuff. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You, you said the Harlem Renaissance was, was interested you for a, a lot of reasons that you mentioned, but how do you usually go about picking this artwork? I'm, like, are you really honed in on kind of what the returns can be and where you see the risk reward kind of things? Are you more focused on just having, you know, interesting offerings for your for your investors and for your investor clients? Um, how, how do you go about choosing which themes you want to you want to come to? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's it's all important. I think realistically, we are very focused on the um, the artists and the artworks that we feel are kind of undervalued. Um, so we are when we're purchasing art, we're always buying, um, you know, at or below fair market value. Um, we, we know that investors are coming to us not only for access to an interesting uh, product, but also with an expect with a hope that there will be, um, you know, meaningful returns. So we're looking at that. But I think it's important as we design these funds to think about relationships between and among the the artists and the artwork that make this more interesting to your point to our um, investors. Mm -hmm. We really do think about it as like curating, almost like curating an exhibition. But I, I think that the plan is really to roll out different funds with different thematic mm -hmm. uh, orientations and um, therefore hope that we will also appeal to investors who have different interests in different types of art it's it's a fascinating um fascinating role that you have here and, and job um by curating these kind of investments where you're combining art and, and finance and just out of interest um out of curiosity on my part how did you get involved with the old street were you more of like in the art background or more in finance i really come from a, a family of artists oh. um but my my career path has been long and circuitous my great aunt was the first female gallery owner in New York City, um, one of the very first. She incidentally gave Alice Neal her first solo exhibition in 1944, oh, no. <laughs> when nobody was looking at Alice Neal's work. Yeah. And she introduced some of the really great abstract expressionists to the United States. Um, and uh, my mother is a sculptor and my one sister is an, is an abstract painter and another brother is a figurative painter. And I was sort of the black sheep and I ended up studying art history at uh, Columbia. And then I went to law school, uh -huh. after which I practiced for an art law for uh, art lawyer for many, many years. And I was representing some of the world's most prominent art collectors and dealers and museums and art foundations. And I was then uh, fortunate to meet the folks who were at the Carlisle Group who were starting this specialty finance company. And we created Athena Art Finance in 2015. And as the general counsel at Athena, because of my background in art history, I was very focused on the, uh, the underwriting of the loans. So we were doing what was called provenance research and looking at questions involving um, issues like authentication and title and restitution and cultural property laws. So I, I really um, had been working with Athena on the art lending business from the beginning and uh, Yield Street acquired Athena in 2019. Right. And we're really excited about the opportunity to offer investors the debt products that are linked to our art backed loans. Mm -hmm. So 
I can get into that, but but essentially that was the the genesis of the art equity funds. Really, the, was the art lending business. Awesome. How cool is that? I knew you were going to have an interesting backstory. <laughs> your position, I just knew it had to be something cool. So yeah, uh, I'm jealous a little bit. Not going to lie, but uh, it seems like an awesome an awesome career career. Yeah, and you know this this um, for me, it's, I am really passionate about it. I'm really passionate about the opportunity we have to support DEI initiatives. Um, you know, a lot of female artists were overlooked. A lot of non-white artists worked in relative obscurity right. during the last hundred years. And this mission is really important to me. I was raised by a female artist. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I really think there's so, I'm so excited to share this with the broader investment community. Yeah, it's it's so cool. I could tell by your by your passionate of just talking to you before we got on. Um, but but it's also great to like you say with the DEI initiatives too to bring some light, shine some light onto these artists yeah. that were overlooked. But then also since they were overlooked, now you actually have some chance of really investing in some return on investments where some of the ones that were more popular. You know, it's those those returns are probably going to be exactly better. because as a lender, we're, we're essentially lending against future saleability. Um, right. So we had to be really confident in our ability to predict the price trajectory of the artworks in case we, God forbid, have to sell them. Fortunately, we've never had to do that, <laughs> but we really need to understand the market for the artworks yeah. Yeah. and the liquidity of the artworks. And we created a proprietary data analytics platform, which has been informing our decisions about how much credit we extend for a given artwork. Okay. And we knew from investor appetite for that product that a lot of people have curiosity about art. Yeah, no, awesome. It's awesome when financial services are doing some social good um, as well as helping helping their investors along. So maybe lastly, I'll get you out of here on this, Rebecca. How what what do we have to look forward to with Yield Street? I know you hinted at some some things that you have, some launches that you have coming down the line for retail investors, maybe or non-accredited investors. Um, yes. What should we What should we look forward to? Well, in the short term, I I really am excited about the rollout of these funds. Um, I think we're planning to roll them out at least every six weeks or so, and there'll be different sort of thematic funds. Cool. But we're also going to be providing some really engaging educational content and and exclusive access to art market information and really meaningful engagement access to important artists. So the hope is that we'll really be in a position to expose investors uh, to sort of an insider's perspective on the art market and really inspire them to dive deeper. And um, you know, ultimately we're hoping that exposure to our art equity funds is gonna inspire people to buy physical art too. Yeah. But we're really committed to um, becoming you know, a, a, a portal through which our investors are really gonna be able to learn about the art as, as an asset class. And we will have, um, we have some really exciting upcoming um, events that I can't reveal too much about. Um, we do have a really exciting partnership with uh, Phillips Auction House in uh, regard to the Freeze LA Art Fair in Los Angeles that's happening next month. Oh, cool. And um, we have, amazing artists in this fund that um, we haven't really talked about yet. And we'll be sort of, we'll be telling investors about that as well. Awesome. Because there are a lot of artists um, who will be sort of added to this fund. Well, it's a great mission that you're um, providing some, some great products and to get some people exposure where they couldn't have elsewhere. You're promoting some DI initiatives and, and just, just advancing art 
and, and artworks and artists, um, you know, to, to a larger swath of, of people. So awesome mission. I'm going to be I'm going to be checking you guys out and looking forward to your for your new launches. I'm so glad about that. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with your audience and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks again to our listeners for tuning into this episode. I thought it was really cool to see just how wide open these investments are getting, how low these minimums are getting. Like I mentioned earlier, it's 25 bucks, 35 bucks in the case of the rare uh, Japanese whiskey that we saw from Vint. So a lot of investors that generally couldn't get their hands on these now can get into these funds. So take a look. We're not endorsing it, but go have a seat, see what things you're passionate about, what you might want to invest in. And, and take a look, these fintechs are opening them up, so it's a really interesting time to, to look into all this. Be, also, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and just about anywhere you can find podcasts, because we're on it. And be sure to stay tuned for our next episode. It's coming at you in February. Thanks again, guys. I hope you now have the information you need to grow your business and your staff.